Hello, hello, hello. Um, hi, welcome to the Down the Rabbit Hole. Uh, this week on the midweek episode, you've got, of course, obviously me, Brandon. Um, and I'm gonna ha- I'm gonna have a little fun this week. Um, this is one that I- I've been looking at for a while, um, and I think this is gonna be a lot of fun, at least for me, anyway. Um, I think this sounds amazing, and this is something I've thought about and I've wanted to do a couple times, and I just hadn't done it yet. Um, Joan of Arc. Uh, I'm going to go through, one thing I'm going to say, I'm going to kind of go through her life, I'm going to talk about it a little bit, I'm going to talk a little bit about her trial, I mean, uh, I'm going to kind of, this is real, I mean, I could have turned this into multiple episodes and really gone deep, deep, deep into this, but this is one I really wanted to give everyone just kind of an idea and make you guys go down this rabbit hole even more, um, because it's fascinating to me, uh, there's many people, there's what we think we know of Joan of Arc. We think we know she was this young girl who, you know, somehow got in control of the, the French army, um, did some something, and then they burned her at the stake because she was a witch. Yeah, kind of. Kind of. Maybe. Sort of. But not really. Um, we'll talk about, you know, a little bit of the theories of who she really was, um, what she really was was she was she insane was she really a messenger of god um we'll kind of go through all of that and talk about the different things with her this is one that i, I like i said I, i've always been slightly fascinated with but never really sat down and really went into the history of joan of arc and now that i have i find it even more fascinating than i did before so, hopefully you guys will enjoy this and uh, have fun going to the rabbit hole with me um, and talking about Joan of Arc. So, she's a very interesting, like I said, figure in history. And this is one I don't think, um, I think if someone had written this story and this was a, a just a random story that we got somewhere that you, people would be like, yeah, that's a reach, man. I, I couldn't see this. I don't know if this would be a great story, but the fact that it's actually history I think is what makes it even more fascinating. Um, yeah, and the time that it went through, this is one when going to, you know, talking about the Knights Templar and everything with Big D and doing the research on that, I ran across everything with her and it made me kind of really decide to, to look into this even more and I'm really, really glad I did. All right, so I'll kind of start off a little bit with, you know, a little bit about her and everything else so Joan of Arc um, and I use a, a lot of different resources on this one I've got some from the History Channel I mean some from Encyclopedia Britannica um, of course I use Wikipedia kind of but I, it's as usual I'll use it for some base stuff and then jump from there but I don't use it as an actual factual document um, but it does come up with some interesting theories that I, I come off of that Wikipedia. Uh, and then I did a lot of research where, like normal, I'll listen to other podcasts and other things like that to get an idea of, you know, what what I'm looking for, you know, springboards to go off of and look at. I do want to say there's some really good podcasts that I found out there that I listen to um, quite a bit on these with these history ones. There's a really good one, History on Fire. The only issue I have with it, and I'll be honest, um, and one of the reasons why I am so happy that me and Big D have never gone and used, you know, and got the 
the sponsors. Um, my, I love everything about, you know, a lot of these podcasts and everything I have, but I mean, a couple of these, they have one of them, literally the first 12 minutes and last 12 minutes of every episode. Cause I timed it cause I was curious is just ads like out of an hour and a half show, 24 minutes of it is ad. Uh, it, it drove me nuts, but the information that he had was great. So I'm like, Oh, I kind of want to go through it. Um, but yeah, so we will do everything we can to never have to do that to you guys. I just wanted to bring it up because I was driving me nuts um, while I was listening to those. Because I drive a lot. Um, for those that don't know, I drive usually in a week 16 to 17 hours of driving. Because um, I drive all over the state of Washington to teach uh, construction safety classes. So it's kind of one of those things for me that... I have a lot of time where I can read some of the stuff when I actually do say I read a book is sometimes it is book on tape where I actually listen to it. So I, I use my time the way I can. Um, I do read a lot of articles at the same time when I'm not driving. I mean, obviously I don't want to read while I'm driving. I'm a safety guy. That'd be kind of odd. Um, but I do listen to a lot. So it is one of those things that I do thank you all for knowing that there's so many different podcasts out there that you could choose and you choose us so that makes me feel great i also want to say thank you to fringe radio network um and the other radio stations that keep us on there you know um thank you all so let's get let's get into joan of arc let's talk about her a little bit so joan of arc was born around 1412 uh, it was really jean the arc um which is the French and English, it's Joan of Arc. Uh, she was the daughter of a tenant armor, Jacques, Jacques de Arc, from the village of Domremy Dom in northeastern France. She was not taught to read or write, but her pious mother, Isabelle Romy, instilled in her deep love for the Catholic Church and its teachings. And this is one of the things I want you to remember as we go through all of this. Joan of Arc was not a noble woman. She was not someone who was raised to fight. She was not someone who was raised to ride horses. She was not someone to raise to do all of this. She was a peasant girl from northern French, northern French, who was illiterate and still she does these amazing things that we're going to talk about here in a bit. So at the time, France had long been torn apart by a bitter conflict with England. <laughs> No big surprise there. Later known as the Hundred Years' War. The funny thing is, the Hundred Years' War, guess how long it was? 116 years. So, apparently that didn't sound as cool as 100 years. So, in that war, England had gained the upper hand. There was a peace treaty in 1420 that disinherited the French crown prince, Charles of Valois, uh, amid accusations of his illegitimacy, and King Henry V was made ruler of both England and France. Now, I'm not going to go deep, and we could, I mean, at some point, it is kind of interesting to see how, you know, a lot of the, the backstory behind this of the Hundred Years' War and everything else, and how much that really does affect everything. Um, it, it's a very interesting one. I'm going to go very quickly uh, down what the Hundred Years and kind of why it lasted, but I'm not going to go deep into it because this story is more about Joan of Arc. And she really only had, out of the 116 years of the 100 Years' War, she only had about two-ish years 
that Joan of Arc has any effect on this war. So, the Hundred Years' War was from 1337 to 1453, like I mentioned, was a conflict between France and England over the legitimate succession to the French throne. William the Conqueror led the Norman conquest of England in 1066, ruling England from 1066 to 1087, and establishing a French monarchy. The later kings of England still had estates and interests in France, and periodically would make some gesture asserting their rights, disregarding the policies or wishes of the French king. The monarchy in France therefore wanted to cut England's power in their, their country, while the English worked to increase the power they already had there. In 1328, Charles IV of France died, leaving no male heir. Charles' sister Isabella of France, Isabella of France, claimed the French throne for her son Edward III of England. But her claim was denied because she was a woman, and women were not allowed to make such claims. The throne passed to Charles' Charles's cousin Philip VI, and the antagonist relationship of these two monarchs, Edward and Philip, finally ignited the war in 1337. And there's a big thing here where we, we've seen a lot of movies where they show a thing of the, like, the intermarrying between the, the, you know, the monarchies, and this is where this starts happening. As you can see, you know, the, you know, the Isabella of France, whose son was Edward, the King of England. So, it's very interesting how they kind of mix and match and everything else. Um, the war is not one long continuous conflict, but a series of military campaigns waged, most, waged mostly on French soil, which consisted of hostilities followed by a truce and then re-engagement. Modern-day scholars have divided the history of the war into three periods for ease of study. So, Joan of Arc appears in the final period, known as the Lancastrian War, after the House of Lancaster, the ruling house of England at the time. The Lancastrian War began with the stunning victory of Henry V of England at Agincourt, where he defeated a numerically superior French force. Throughout the Hundred Years' War, English victories far surpassed those of the French, and in this last phase of the war, the paradigm seemed it would hold following Agincourt. Um, Henry V married Catherine of Valois, daughter of the sitting French king Charles IV, or the Sixth, under the terms of the Treaty of Troyes, and could now lay claim to the throne of France. Charles VI, however, had a male heir, the Dauphin Charles, who maintained his right to the throne and was able to garner support for his claim. So here there's a fight between the two. Um, England and Germany, or not Germany, sorry, France, yet again. Uh, English victories continued as Charles' supporters struggled to drive the English from France and legitimize his rule by crowning him King at Reims, a city then held by the Burgundian alloys, allies of the English. The Dauphin Charles only had any power in and around the city of Chinon, and his dwindling forces were defeated every time they took the field. It is during this period that Joan of Arc appears. So, and that's one of those things that a lot of people, you know, don't realize at this time. And I mean, one of the reasons why later I think Joan of Arc, you know, ends up becoming, which, you know, spoiler alert, she gets canonized as a saint. Um, which a lot of it comes down to, they were, they were on the ropes. You know, the, the, the French were getting their asses handed to them and they were on the ropes. Um, the, the, the idea of getting to Reims or I, I'm, I'm assuming that's how you pronounce it. It's R-H-E-I-M-S. And anybody who listens to this podcast and has listened to any episodes with me knows that I can't pronounce most things in English, let alone French 
or any other language. So I'm going to do my best on these as usual. We'll see what happens. So um, like I said, Joan comes into the picture doing this part where Charles the Dauphin, um, or Dauphin, Dauphin, um, which is one of those weird things. I read some of the, the, the it's basically the, the title Dauphin um, is basically saying that he's next in line to the throne or basically it's a prince. So um, like I said, I'm not great with French. I'm trying to learn Spanish. It's hard enough to do that. French kills me. So early life and visions for Joan. So Joan, like we mentioned a little bit ago, was born in Domremy, Dom which was a village in, uh, in French, to Isabel Romain and Jacques d'Arc. She had two older brothers, Jacques, sometimes given as Jacquim, and Jean, and a younger brother and sister, Pierre and Catherine. Jacques d'Arc was a farmer, and the children have all been brought up in learning uh, to be farmers. Um, a lot of things, and we're going to kind of we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here too. The trial, a lot of the stuff that we know is stuff that came up in the trial. One of the reasons why we know so much about Joan of Arc is how much was documented at her trial, um, and why we know more about her during that time than we do about a lot of other people, because she was there. Uh, everything about her was documented so um there we go at the age of 13 joan began to hear voices which she determined had been sent by god to give her a mission of overwhelming importance and that importance was to save france by expelling its enemies and install charles as its rightful king um the dauphin as part of this divine mission joan took a vow of chastity at the age of 16, after her father attempted to arrange a marriage for her, she successfully convinced a local court that she should not be forced to accept the match. Which a lot of people don't realize this. A lot of people really think that, you know, back then, I mean, it was something I really didn't realize while researching this, that pretty much, um, if your parents said, okay, you two are getting married, deal with it, that you were stuck. And that's actually not true. Really, they still had to have their permission. Because um, in this case where she said, you know, and like I said, convinced the local court that she could not be forced to accept the match. Because when she said no, because of her convictions and that she had taken a vow of chastity, um, the suitor actually sued her for, you know, basically the embarrassment. And she won. So, which is very interesting. So, she won uh, the, the argument because of the fact that it was proven that she had never once given her a blessing and said yes to the marriage. So that's why she won and was told that she was not forced. She would not be forced to marry him. So in May 1428, Jane made her way to Vaucouliers, a nearby stronghold of those loyal to Charles. Initially, she was rejected by local magistrate Robert de Baudincourt. She persisted, attracting a small band of followers who believed her claims to be the virgin, who, according to proper prophecy, was destined to save France. And that's another thing about this a lot of people, you know, really talk about. At the time, there was a prophecy that was roaming around France that a virgin would save France. And basically, this was what, you know... 
Joan became known as was the person who was to fulfill this prophecy. So, which, I mean, if you know your history, kind of comes true. Uh, but that's kind of how she was able to get this. Because this is one of the hard things that really gets me in this when I first start researching it. Um, if this was now, you'd never even hear this story, you know. But back then, I mean, it's the, the prophecies and everything else really made this come to come to happen. And the other thing where, you know, we're talking about here with the whole thing with, you know, her convincing bone court wasn't just like all of a sudden, oh, hey, you know, and, and it took her a couple of days and getting a small band of followers to get him to finally listen to her. Um, it took months. For this to happen. So, when Baudrincourt relented, eventually, Joan cropped her hair and dressed in men's clothes to make the 11-day journey. Remember that thing about the men's clothes. This becomes a huge thing later on. And we'll talk about it more and more. Um, where it becomes huge, where they talk about the, the, the fact that she wore men's clothing. Um, and everything else. Because back then, it literally was a sin to wear men's clothing. Um, I can't remember. I had it written down, but... There is a Bible verse that says that you men and women, you know, men, women will not wear men's clothing and men cannot wear women's clothing. Um, so this was a huge deal. And like I said, this comes back later and in all reality becomes her downfall. So and a lot of people put a lot of stress on this because it is her downfall. Um, and I'll explain in a bit why. So. She cropped her hair, like I said, and dressed in men's clothes to make the 11-day journey across enemy territory to Chinon, site of the crown prince's palace. Joan promised Charles she would see him crowned king at Reims, the traditional site of French royal investiture, and asked him to give her an army to lead to Orleans, then under siege from the English. So this is one of those really weird things um, where, like I said, I mean... <laughs> All of a sudden, some girl comes in to the king and says, Hey, I hear voices and I see visions of angels. And they're telling me that I am going to be the one to take France back from the English. And he listens. I mean, that was now. I mean, if this was something you just wrote a story and gave, told me that, I would have been like, Yeah, Jamand. There's no way this is happening. But... This, like I said, it's history. It really did happen. I mean, he gave her, you know, an army. You know, against the advice of most of his counselors and his generals, Charles granted her request. And Joan set off to fend off the siege of Orleans in March of 1429, dressed in white armor and riding a white horse. After sending off a defiant letter to the enemy, Joan led several French assaults against them. That's insane. So... I mean, just insane to think that this girl, this this teenage girl, was able to do this. Um, yeah, so, and that's one thing too, I mean, it, it, just, just to think about that, you know, in 1428, in May of 1428, she went to Robert, you know, de Bodencourt, you know, who was the captain of the garrison of the Valculaires, and then he said, no. No thanks. Laughed her off. In fact, even told her, you know, her her cousin that was with her that he should take her back to her father so he can her father can basically beat her for being, you know, insolent. And then later returned to the captain's office in early 1429 and convinced him to let her take her to the Dauphin. 
it's insane. So, um, yeah, I mean, insane to think that that's how it happened. Now, there's a couple different stories of when she met the Dauphin and why he allowed her to become, you know, to, to do this. And that's one of the weird things. Um, and uh, th there's a story that always goes around, and I found it in multiple places, but I also found where it was discredited um, of her, you know, that Charles had been appraised of her Jones visit and decided to test her by dressing as one of his courtiers and having one of them dress as the Dauphin. If Joan was truly sent by God, then she would know the true Dauphin. When Joan entered the assembly, she went directly to Charles and addressed him as the Dauphin, and when he protested and tried to trick her further, she held her ground. Later in private, she is said to have convinced him of her legitimacy by telling him things he had only said to God in prayer. So that's one of the big things there is there's a lot of people that like quote that story, but a lot of others say, no, that's not actually what happened. What really happened was to make sure that everything was good. He actually had her sit outside and, you know, wait inside of a church until he let her in, that they met before this. And this was some pomp and circumstance kind of like little play that they did for the people to see, but they already knew. He, she'd already met him and she already knew who he was. So this wasn't as amazing as it sounds. And I'm not trying to take anything away from her. I'm just trying to like, you know, go with what I found in the history. Um, and we will go into later on what I believe on who and what she really was. So, so even after this hasn't happened, you know, but the part where she did in private say something to him that convinced him of her legitimacy that part everyone stands by they say that there was something they had a private conversation and in that private conversation she said something to him that made him say yeah you're it you're the one um something she said and nobody has that nobody knows because joan never once revealed what it was she said to him and the dauphin charles also has never once said what that was so, which is, you know, one of those things that only they know, but something she said to him made him think, yep, this is the one. So, he had to make, still had to make sure that Joan was not a witch, trying to place him under her spell. Um, there's a lot of things, we'll talk later more and more about how uh, some people believe that she was a witch. And so, had her examined by, examined for orthodoxy and purity by an assembly of clergy at Pointiers. She was declared an orthodox Christian in good standing and presented herself to the Dauphin again as the answer to his problems at Orleans. So, basically they check to make sure she's a virgin, make sure she's really telling the truth, that she's not she's not black magic, whatever. Um, I really did not get deep into figuring out how they know if she's a virgin or not. I'm pretty sure it had to do with checking the hymen, which, I'll be honest, is pretty amazing. I mean, it's a miracle in itself for all that riding of a horse to get there. 11 miles hard riding on a horse that, 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 that hadn't been broken. So... So like I said a little bit ago, prophecies had been circulating in France for years that a maiden armor would arise from the region of Lorraine to save the country. And Joan now fulfilled that prophecy in traveling with the army in Orleans in full battle gear. Although she had thus far had nothing to do with the war and had never been involved in a single military engagement, the prophecy attached itself to her so firmly that she was welcomed in the city as a hero. The siege was conducted by the English in such a way that gaps were opened to the city at various intervals which could quickly be closed when necessary. 
Jordan and her forces were able to enter the city through one of these on the Lower, Lower River, a few miles east of Orleans. So, this is the first part of what she told the Dauphin that she would do, was take back Orleans. So, the siege of Orleans had been underway at this point for five months, and the French had found no way to lift it. Scholars continued to debate Joan of Arc's significance in lifting the siege, citing how new tactics were used in May of 1429 that had not been attempted before, and how the defenders were open to new possibilities. And so, by this reasoning, Joan's presence in Orleans may not have had as much impact as legend claims. But there's no one, I mean, there's a lot of this story that you can go back and say coincidence, coincidence, coincidence. But a lot happens as we go through this that it's like, hmm, I don't know. It's a lot of coincidence. So, so uh, this reasoning is specious, however, in that it could and has been argued that Jones arrival in Orleans seemingly the fulfillment of prophecy inspired the change in tactics and the sudden belief in the possibility of victory. Orleans was a pivotal city and of immense tactical and symbolic importance on both sides in the conflict. If the city fell, the French would most likely lose the war. Um, Orleans was a huge, like right there on the river, a huge shipment point, a huge way to get to other parts and travel. Um, so it's the holding of Orleans was huge for either side. Whoever had it, you know, would, you know, be able to do a lot. And the whole idea that she didn't do anything, those new tactics may may have had nothing to do with her or may have had a lot to do with her. You really got to think about the fact, how many times have you seen something where just having that momentum, that spirit, the thought, just everyone suddenly, that spirit, that, that cheer, somebody, a cheerleader come in and change the, the movement of a sporting event or anything. And I know a war is not a sporting event, but it's the same idea where all of a sudden everyone's able to do better, you know, and fight better. And it changes the tide. And that even just her being there, being that, you know, she's the prophecy, changes the tide, changes the feeling of the people and makes the French want to fight harder. So very much so very much could have been her or like we like they said, could have just been that they changed things up a little bit. So Joan immediately Brace her role as heroine by personally greeting the citizens of Orleans and going among them daily to encourage, inspire, and deliver food and supplies. The men in charge of the defense of the city routinely tried to keep her from their war councils, but she would not be dissuaded, and if she could not participate, she could at least listen in. So, repeatedly Joan called for direct action against key points in the English line and was ignored but continuous, continued patiently to suggest courses of action and to go among the other the people encouraging them and lifting their spirits. She rallied troops and led them in an assault on the English position of Saint-Loup, which was successful, and the next day, backed by a militia of the citizenry, which had responded to her inspiration, took part in another engagement, which further broke the siege. Joan was wounded in the chest in these engagements, but still perceived, persevered, and carried her standard, inspiring others to fight on. The siege of Orleans was lifted nine days after her arrival. So she came in and did quite a bit. One of the things too, and I kind of skipped over it a little bit because it's kind of one of those weird things. Um, before she left, before she left for Orleans, she had basically didn't have a sword, didn't have any weapon, didn't have anything like that. So she actually sent um, some people, told them to go to this church, go to this spot in the church, dig, you'll find a sword, bring it back to me. It'll have, you know, it'll have crosses on it and all this other stuff. They went, they found the sword there, they brought it back to her. And a lot of people think that was one of her first, you know, real miracles. Um, 
it's it's questionable on some ways because one of the other things on that one is some people think that the church where she sent them was where she was waiting for Charles to let her in and it may be something that she found it she may have put it there she just may have known it was there someone may have told her so who knows but it's still kind of a cool little thing that's where she got the sword um you know that she carried even though pretty much I can find no nothing that shows that she ever actually used it never killed anyone never attacked anyone she was injured twice more than that three times I believe actually one she stepped on a spike now it was a weird it was a trap with a spike that went to her foot um, the next one was, as I just mentioned, where she was hitting the chest. That one they talk about it was she was hit in between the, her neck and her collarbone. Um, and it actually went six inches deep. And they pulled it out and then she went right back out to fight. So um, so she was brutal. I mean, she, she took a beating. She was, she was tough as nails. So um, Joan instantly went to work on a campaign after you know they they taken orleans to pave the way for charles to be crowned at reims now the one thing a lot of people don't understand too is reims was that was the place where you had to be crowned as king of france was in reims so that's why they had to get him to reims so he could have a legitimate you know claim he had to have been coronated in reims but reims was being held by the burgundian allies of the English so um, and it's deep in the heart of English held territory and Joan's plan of simply marching in protected by the grace and strength of God and taking the land seemed naive and impossible and an impossible proposal to the commanders of the French forces the failing wisdom of the day made clear that women had certain tasks they had been given by God and men had other and far more important responsibilities and so women's advice on men's business was simply ignored Joan was not only a woman, but a teenage woman without any military experience or professional training and leadership. So there was a lot of things here where they didn't want to listen to it, but she had started to gain um, help and had people that were paying attention to her and listening to her. Um, there was the, the Bastard of Orleans, which it's really interesting. It took me a while in the research of this to really get used to the fact that the Bastard of Orleans isn't as bad as it sounds like to us that would be that that's a total insult back then it was really actually it's just a title um he was the bastard of orleans he was you know the the son of the the duke of orleans um but out of wedlock that's all it really meant so it wasn't really a, a, a an insult it's just it's who he was he was the bastard of orleans which is quite interesting um Gilderay is another supporter that she had that helped her quite a bit throughout things. He's somebody else. If you, if you, <laughs> he's he's one that I'm gonna have to talk about eventually. Um, but I got to work my way up to it. It's very disgusting, very disturbing. Um, but also at the same time, some people think that because of his ties to um, Joan of Arc, that some of that his story is made up. And not as bad as it really sounds. Um, I don't know about that, though. So, so, and like I said, nobody really wanted to listen to her. But she was starting to get some people more on her side. So, she was able to convince Command to agree to her suggestion. As her victory to Orleans brought recruits from all over the country to join in the campaign. This initiative resulted in French victories from Jargot to Mouang. Uh, Bougancy and culminating the June victory at Pate, all inspired by Joan. Even if she was not in a command position at each of them, 
the Loire campaign steadily cleared the region on a march toward Reims. The French were so successful that the Burgundians of Reims surrendered the city and opened its gates without opposition, and Charles VII was crowned King of France in the Reims Cathedral, in keeping with tradition and with Joan of Arc by his side in July of 19, or 1429. Now, this is the part that's crazy, if you really think about this. It was, that's, what, May of 1428 is when she, you know, pretty much went to and said, hey, uh, I I, I want to go, uh, I want to go there. Went to Robert de Baudricourt. So, um, in 1428, she went to Robert de, de Baudricourt. So, May of 1428, and then, by July 1429, she is standing next to the king as he's being coronated. So, she went from being some peasant girl in May of 1428, who's going up to, you know, the, the captain of the guard saying, Hey, take me so I can meet the king, because I'm hearing voices that say I'm going to save France, um, to literally standing next to the king as he's coronated in July of 1429. So, 18 months, 16 months, whatever that is. So, just over a year, less than two. So, um, insane. I mean, to think how quickly she became, you know, trusted and running the armies, not really running the armies. And that's one of the big things I think a lot of people think that she was out there leading the armies and leading the charge. She was in some ways. I mean, she was helping. She was out there. She would go out on the battlefield. She was not afraid to be out on the battlefield um, and all of that. But she, you know, it's amazing. So, so the great French, medieval French writer, Christine de Pizan, wrote in her tale of Joan of Arc to celebrate the liberation of Orleans, the first literary work that was written in Joan's honor and the only one in her lifetime. Uh, and must have been overjoyed at the coronation of the king. Records of the time suggest high spirits among the French everywhere as it seemed that the tables had finally turned. And there it was. At last, a chance that France might win the inter interminable war, which by this time had been ongoing for almost a century. Then, and this is where it got interesting. So by this time, a lot of the stuff, and I haven't really gone deep into it, because I mean, you, you'll have to go into it. She's led by voices in her head and angels that she only she can see and hear. Um, and they were the ones telling her to go do all this. This is what she needed to do. Go see the Dauphin, you know, do what she would, you know, do this, take Orleans, then move on to Reims so that they can get the, the Charles, the true king, coronated. At this point, that's all that they had told her to do. Now, she actually goes, not against, but she starts to do her own things. Um, her own things without the, the direction of the voices and going out on her own. So she decides, after a while, she convinces the king, you know, even though he keeps saying no and no, 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 she finally convinces him, kind of, to um, let her take some troops and go to Paris and try and take Paris back from the Burgundians. So in a, a fight with the, the Burgundians um, for Paris, 
there and it's weird you know um there's different stories and kind of how it happened uh where she was fighting they all went out as they were coming back to retreat because they they weren't going things weren't going so well to go back into the city to get away from them um she stayed back with the rear you know rear, rear of the army to help them you know slow down the english and the Burgundians so that everybody could get back into the city and as she was going back they closed the gates before her and the the last few people got there and she was caught um there's different things on how that happened um different stories i, I read different different ideas on why um some say it was a side door so they could have waited longer for her to get there and the troops um some think that um it was done on purpose that they left her out there so that she could get caught by the english um because by this point i mean she it sounds really bad to say this she'd served her purpose um so the burgundians caught her and then basically after a while um there were some issues and then she was pretty much uh they held her for a bit talked to her and then she was sold to the english um and then once she was held by the english now the trial starts um because of course the english hated her she had helped the french take back their their cities they'd done all sorts of stuff the the the, the english wanted her to you know get rid of her um obviously so she was held in the english controlled city of rouen where her trial for heresy would take place um and this is where everything gets all crazy um she was held there and she should she was held in a, a a military prison but being a woman and also not being really tried by the the english but being tried for heresy which was a church crime she should have been held in ecclesiastical prison where she would have been tended to and guarded by women but instead she was kept in a sec secular jail constantly harassed and threatened by male guards the trial from the beginning was a farce which a number of clerics initially refused to participate in until their lives were threatened by english authorities those who finally agreed to take part however were far from happy about it so this is kind of one of those things there's a lot of things in this trial the english wanted her gone but at the same time there's some really weird things if you really go into how war was supposed to work and the things you were supposed to do in war. Um, they didn't want her to be considered a martyr. Um, just by killing her, they wanted to make her seem like she was a witch. Because the other thing they could do, if they could get convinced and try her as a witch and prove she was a witch, then they could prove that Charles had taken the throne by with the use of a witch which would throw his legitimacy of his you know his reign into question and put it back on the you know possibly the english taking back you know the the control and the monarchy of france so there was a lot of things riding on this so they wanted to prove that she was a witch so yes so if joan were telling the truth then the English had been wrong in God's eyes for continuing the war, and the English clergy had been wrong in supporting it. So that was a big problem. 
Joan had to be found guilty, and yet the evidence that God had directed her victories was irrefutable, really. With no experience in leadership or military matters, Joan had proven herself an exceptional strategist, winning every engagement she took part in. Not true, because she got caught, but hint, the judge knew she had been examined for orthodoxy and purity and had been found a good Christian and a virgin. In order to convict her, the tribunal would have to trick her into confessing she had lied about her visions and was guilty of heresy. And that's the key there. See, they wanted to get her as a witch. After a while, it kind of went like, eh, I don't think we're going to get her as a witch, so let's get her for heresy. So, um, like I said, if they could get her on heresy, once again, now they can kill her or at least get rid of her. And there wouldn't be a problem. But there is a, a problem there. Um, you can't burn someone for being a heretic. So, and we will get to that here in a minute. So, Joan was held in a military prison, shackled even in her cell, and abused by her guards, and was led out to be questioned by the most sophisticated legal minds of her day. According to the transcripts of her trial, which if you get a chance to find them, read them, they're, they're fascinating, uh, she ably defended herself, especially the moment the judge tried to trick her by asking if she believed she was in a state of grace. So, this is one of those things where there's a lot of examples of this. The state of grace one is one that I see the most, and it actually is kind of a, kind of a cool way of doing it. Because um, the idea is that if they ask you, um, if they ask you if you're, you're, you're in God's good grace, you kind of have a problem there. It's a conundrum. Because if you answer, nobody nobody can know what God's grace is or what God, God thinks. So to say that you're in God's grace, then that would be the knowing what God thinks, which is heresy. So in that answer, if Joan answers yes, then she would be a heretic. And if she answered no, she would be confessing herself as guilty of not being God's grace since her visions would be invalidated. Ta-da! So they, they tried to get her in a, like a no-win question, right? It's, you know, the uh, just no-win question. So Jones slipped through their trap, answering simply, If I am not, may God put me there. And if I am, may God keep me there. And it's one of those things, and this is just one example of this. If you go through and read the transcripts, um, I mean, and this was not just a short trial. This trial was a long, long trial. Um, she does stuff like this all the time. It slips through their questions. There was an upwards of 70 different people on the prosecution side with one main guy who I'm not even going to say his name because he's a wank. Um, uh, basically running it all and the rest of them all clerics all people who've studied theology you know 70 basically trained theologists against a 19 year old illiterate farm girl and she was intellectually mopping the floor with them on these questions um, which is quite interesting and quite fascinating. And I mean, they get to go home every night to their families, eat food. She goes back to a jail cell and they leave her there. And she's harassed by the guards and all sorts of issues. So, 
So eventually they threatened her with death by fire. She recanted her claim to have been directed by God to liberate France. But her visions returned to her and denounced her for trying to save her life at the expense of the truth. So June withdrew her recantation and was sentenced to death under ecclesiastical law as a heretic. Now here's the thing on that. Is this is actually how they really got her. And the, the, a lot of them kind of really step over this and ignore it. When she, she, when she said, you know, and basically signed a confession, which actually, if you go through there, there's two of them. There's one that she really signed and there's one that, you know, they had there. And what's interesting, the one that she signed, she had, she could sign her name. She was illiterate, but she'd learned how to sign her name. But if she, she signed it with a symbol, it was pretty much an X and she'd pretty much told her troops if she was ever captured or anything like that, if they get a letter from her that's signed with an X, that's false. It's a false, you know, letter. It's lies. So she signed this with, with an X basically saying, Neep. but they still took it as a safe signature. But part of it too also said that she would not wear men's clothing anymore. She would only wear women's clothing. Now, two things there, there's two different versions of this story of why um, she went back to men's clothing. One was the, that a guard tried to rape her. And the one thing is, is why one of the reasons she wore men's clothing, one, so that she didn't, you know, she wouldn't stand out as a woman in some ways. And two, because, well, one, fighting in armor was a lot easier when you were wearing men's clothing. Um, but also, it, it's a lot harder for a man to rape you. In men's clothing it's a harder to get the clothing off to rape her if she's wearing men's clothing than it would be in a dress so that's one of the reasons why they say that you know one of the guards tried to rape her and to protect herself she went back to wearing a you know men's clothing as protection the other side of, the other story of this is the main you know prosecutor basically said hey May, and stripped her of the dress and left her in the cell naked with the only choice was to either stand in the cell naked or put back on men's clothing. Now, to be a heretic, technically they can't burn you as a heretic, which if you listen to our, you know, Knights Templar episode, we mentioned this. What can you be burned for? Oh, I know. What can you be burned for? Um, being a relapsed heretic. So when she denounced the idea of wearing men's clothes or men's clothing and went back to wearing women's clothing, she was a heretic. When she went back and started wearing men's clothing again, she relapsed back into her heresy and made her a relapsed heretic. What's the punishment for being a relapsed heretic? Burning at the stake, just like the Knights Templar. Nice little loophole. Um, it's one of those things that it's quite interesting. It's it sucks that that's the way it went down for her. Um, she was burned to the stake. She went there. Um, yeah, she was burned to the stake in Rouen, calling upon the name of Jesus throughout her execution on May thirtieth, fourteen thirty one, to make sure that she was dead. The court ordered her corpse to be burned twice more and her and ashes thrown in the river sign. Um, it's sad very sad um there's a lot of interesting things in this though like i said there, there's a renounced a relapsed heretic um when she was burned um they made 
the her pyre a lot higher than normal because normally there's one thing to try and take some of the 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 as a mercy they they'll have the hangman or the executioner so as it were um kill the person before the the fire really got to him as a mercy um when they built it so high there was no way that he could do it uh, there's a lot of different things, you know, one thing a lot of people say as she was burning, she to ask, you know, for someone to, to show her a cross so she could pray, that she prayed, a lot of different things about her death, um, we're not going to go deep into that, I mean, you can look it up, I mean, but basically it comes down to she was burned at the stake, um, sad way to go, um, unfortunate way to go, but the English got what they wanted, she was burned at the stake, but it did not help them, they ended up pretty much losing the war um some of the things you know that in conclusion after it all happened um charles the seventh for whom joan gave had given her life largely proved an unworthy monarch in almost every regard he's generally regarded as weak-willed and apathetic especially in the years prior to joan's involvement with him and the accomplishments of his 38-year reign are understood have been in, have been inspired encouraged by others and hardly worth the life which had been paid for his rise to power so attempts had been made to free Joan, but none of them were orchestrated or authorized by Charles. France would eventually win the Hundred World Years War in 1453, and although there have been many books through the years arguing otherwise, this was due to the inspiration provided by Joan of Arc. So more than any innovations of French military tactics. If you go through any of this and read any of it, I mean, it's amazing the way she was able to rally the troops. Um, and a lot of things she did too, is you, if you really look into the stuff she did, she also made, because before the part of like the reason why France, the peasants wouldn't get behind the army, it really didn't matter which army won and you know, whatever, whether it be the Burgundians, the English, the French, whoever won, they'd go through the town and rape and pillage and do whatever, even to, you know, the, the French armies would even do that to the French towns. I mean, they were all sucked horrible people um when joan came in she's like one she ran off all the, the the prostitutes said nope no more no more of this we're all gonna live like true christians um she made them all you know stop gambling made them you know stop swearing they were not allowed to rape and pillage she stopped doing all this and because of that the peasants started rooting and helping along the way as well so it, there's a lot of things that she did behind the scenes that they really don't talk about that are quite fascinating that she was able to get people to do um and listen to her so it's it is awesome um a few things before we go uh one you know a couple you know seven surprising things um is a quick article that i found on history um joan's real name was Jeanne the arc or Jean Park, or Jean Romain, or possibly Jean de Vaudouf, Vauthun. Uh But she didn't go by any of them. So um, she didn't hail from a place called Arc, like we mentioned. It was, she came from Domery, Dom, Dom Remy. So, uh, but she had multiple names, but the one she used the most was Jean La Possette, or Joan the Maid. So, um, which is quite interesting. Some doctors in modern times have scholarized, you know, and scholars have diagnosed Joan, diagnosed with quotes, um, with disorders ranging from everything from epilepsy to schizophrenia. So that's what a lot of people wonder. What war 
those, you know, the, the visions and everything else. So, like I said, around the age of 12 or 13, Joan of Arc apparently began hearing voices and experiencing visions, which she interpreted as signs from God. During her trial, she testified that angels and saints first told her merely to attend church and live piously. Later, they began instructing her to deliver France from the invading English and established Charles VII, the uncrowned heir to the French throne, as the country's rightful king. The maid asserted that a bright light often accompanied the visions and that she heard the voices more distinctly when bells sounded. Based on these details, some experts have suggested that Joan suffered from one of numerous neurological and psychiatric conditions that trigger hallucinations or delusions, including migraines, bipolar disorder, uh, brain lesions. There were just a few of those. So another theory holds that she contracted bovine tuberculosis, which can cause seizures and dementia from drinking unpasteurized milk and tending cattle as a young child. There's some that think she also had, here comes back one of our other favorites, ergot poisoning. But here's the problem with some of these, like that maybe the, the bovine tuberculosis, maybe, but like ergot poisoning, this lasted from 12 to the time she was like 12 or 13 till the age of 19. So it wasn't like this was one of those things. So unless she was like constantly eating ergot, um, the ergot poisoning would have stopped um, giving her the hallucinations and everything else. Um, it would have only lasted for a short while. So if you forgot ergot poisoning, it's come up in a couple different ones, like Salem Witch Trials and stuff like that, that we've talked about, talked about in the past. Um, but there's, yeah, a lot they've thought, you know, but each one, if you go through them, kind of has its own, like schizophrenia. Um, big problem with that one is, is how lucid she was during the trial. Um, doesn't really fit most of the time with uh, schizophrenia and some of the others, but it's really hard without, you know, being there to know what it was. Migraines, maybe, you know, the bipolar disorder, possibly, but they really, I didn't see in most of the things that I read, I didn't really read of any, you know, manic episodes. So, but um, some of the other ones, I, things I saw was anorexia uh, was another one. Um, severe anorexia can cause hallucinations. And stuff like that so yeah so while commander of the french army joan of arc didn't participate in active combat though remembered as a fearless warrior considered heroine of the hundred years war between france and england joan never actually fought in battle or killed an opponent and said she would accompany her men as a sort of inspirational mascot brandishing her banner in place of a weapon she was also responsible for outlining military strategies directing troops and proposing diplomatic solutions to the english all of which they rejected um, and most of her diplomatic solutions was pretty much surrender or I'm going to kill you. Um, some of her letters that she had dictated were quite interesting. Um, despite her distance from the front lines, Joan was wounded at least twice, taking her to the shoulder and a crossbow bolt to the thigh. And that's when she was going after Paris, was when she got hit with the crossbow bolt. Um, she had a volatile temper. Uh, once placing control of the French army, the teenage president didn't hesitate to chew out prestigious knights for swearing, behaving indecently, skipping mass, or dismissing her battle plans. She even accused her noble patrons of simpleness, spinelessness in their dealings with the English. According to witnesses at her retrial, Joan once tried to slap a Scottish soldier. The Scots teamed up with France during the Hundred Years' War. Um, she tried to slap him, a soldier who had eaten stolen meat. She also supposed to drove away the mistresses and prostitutes who traveled with her army at sword point, hitting one or two in the process, and personally, personal attacks by the English, who called her rude names and joked that she should return home to her cows, reportedly made Joan's blood boil. The made short fuse is evident in transcripts of her court hearings, when a clergyman with a thick regional accent asked what region her voices spoke, 
For instance, she retorted that they spoke French better than he did. Contrary to popular belief, Joan of Arc was, uh, she was not burned at the stake for uh, witchcraft like we mentioned. So, after she'd fallen into enemy hands in 1430, Joan of Arc was trying the English stronghold of Rouen by the ecclesiastical court. The 70 charges against her, 70 by the way, ranged from sorcery to horse theft. But by May 1431, they had been whittled down to just 12, most related to her wearing of men's clothing and claims that God had directed, directly contacted her. Offered life imprisonment in exchange for an admission of guilt, Joan signed a document commencing her alleged sins and promising to change her ways. Um, it has been speculated that the illiterate Joan never knew what she put her name on or more accurately her mark of a cross. Several days later, possibly due to threats of violence or rape from her guards, Joan put her male attire back on. She then told any judges she visited saw that her voice had reappeared. It was these two acts that earned Joan a conviction as a, once again, as we mentioned, relapsed heretic. And that's what got her killed. Um, after her death in 1434 to 1440, Joan's brothers passed an imposter off as their sister, claiming she'd escaped execution. So one of several women who posed as Joan in the years following her death, Claude des Armois, resembled the well-known heretic and had supposedly participated in military campaigns while dressed in men's clothing. She and two of Joan's brothers, uh, Jean and Pierre, crafted a scheme in which Claude presented herself to the people of Orleans, pretending to have fled her captors and married a knight while living in obscurity. The trio received lavish gifts and traveled from one festive reception to the next until Claude finally admitted their subterfuge to Charles VII, whose ascension Joan had engineered in 1429. Despite their involvement in deception, Jean and Pierre played key roles in successfully petitioning Pope Calixtus III for Joan's retrial, having presumably given up the shroud of her survival by the 1450s. Um, that is one too, the, the Claude, um, but Claude was one of those ones. She did a lot of things that were not Joan-esque. Um, she would drink, she would dance with men, she'd do all sorts of things that uh, Joan would never have done. And Charles, they say, basically figured out that it wasn't her because he basically just asked her, what did you say to me? That made me change my mind and she couldn't answer. So, so a couple weird things about her. Um, like it mentions, she was retrialed or retried by the church in the 1450s and found not guilty. Um, which doesn't change the fact that she was burned at the stake. So she's found not to be a heretic. Um, one of the things that they said that there is a provision somewhere in the, the which nobody could point to, but there is some provision that basically says it is okay for a woman to wear men's clothing as a protection against the attacks of men. So, um, and that's what they said she did. And that's why they were able to say that she was not a heretic and therefore not a relapsed heretic. Um, very interesting. And then in the 1920s, the church actually did something that I could not find um, anyone else that it had happened to where she was immortalized as a saint. She was canonized as a saint. Um, and I could not find anyone else that had been taken, you know, and, and burned at the stake by the church and then later canonized. So very interesting. Um, definitely go down the, the rabbit hole on this. There, there's some other fascinating things. There's some fascinating theories on who she was, um, what had happened, um, all that kind of stuff. Uh, what do I think? 
I'll be honest, I don't know for sure. It's one of those things we all know. I am not a big religious person, but I'm also not... I would not say I'm an atheist. I do believe in, in crazy things. There's way too many coincidences here, way too many things that happened that, I mean, really make me think if there is a God or whatever or a supreme being or it's the... <laughs> my favorite, it's the lizard people. It's the new lizard order, you know, and they're controlling us and maybe they, they gave her visions. Um, no, I really don't think it's that one. But I just had to throw it in there because I know it drives some people nuts. Um, <laughs> but could it have been God? It could have been. Something was going on here that basically made her know things she shouldn't have known um, and able to do things she shouldn't have been able to do. So, and there's a lot of other theories. There's theories that she was really a noble, that she actually was one of Charles' you know, uh, siblings, which I doubt because if she was um, her mother and uh, his mother and you know his father, Charles's mother and father, had disowned him basically and put their claim behind the, the king of England, not him. Um, so all sorts of things here. There are some that thinks that it was her and the, the Duke of Orleans that they had, you know, had an affair. And but then if you do the math, it doesn't work out because um, he would have died five years before she was born. You know, the person that was supposed to be the father. I mean, there's all sorts of crazy thoughts. But I think it really was. She was just a, she was a peasant girl. Um, she was able to. She she had some amazing ability. And was able to do this, you know, this amazing thing and be this amazing person. So definitely go down the rabbit hole. There's so much more. Like I probably could have done multiple episodes on this. But I really think it would be amazing if you guys went and looked up some of this stuff and found more. Um, but yeah, I've, I, I've been rambling for a while now. I hope you learned something. I hope you go back, research Joan of Arc, get some more information on her. Find out some, you know, what an, uh, an interesting historical figure she was. And look at those, the, the, the history behind her. Um, thank you for listening. Um, I'm Brandon. And I will be back this weekend with Big D. And once again, thank you all for listening. And I'm out.